would turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel according to John. In chapter 2 of the Gospel according to John, we'll start in verse 12 this morning and go through 22. There are extra Bibles available in the pew if you're without a copy of God's Word, and you can find the sermon text on page 887. Once you've found your place, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Hear the word of the Lord. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how desperate we are to hear from the word of your grace this morning. Lead us into all truth and deliver us from whatever hinders the eyes of our hearts from seeing the greatness of of Jesus Christ this morning. Send your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and create faith in your divine Son. Silence any powers of darkness that stand against the people in this gathering and help every person to take every thought captive to obey Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last Sunday, we made our way into chapter 2 of John's Gospel. And we saw there that Jesus, as God's Messiah, is bringing a joy-filled kingdom unlike anything we can imagine. Jesus Christ is bringing a kingdom of unending gladness in God's presence. And even though his final kingdom has yet to arrive, we who believe that Jesus is the Christ have already begun to taste the kingdom's gladness. We who call ourselves Christians already taste the kingdom's joy. We've already, we already sing the kingdom's songs because we find ourselves undeservingly forgiven 
and filled with assurance that God has actually and really made us citizens of his kingdom. Jesus' cross and his resurrection set in motion the days of celebration over the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus has purified us from sin, not to make us miserable over what we can't have in this life, but to make us joyful in the eternal life we gain with God, both now in this life and forever. Jesus is truly the bringer of what we called last week messianic joy. Meaning that he doesn't, just, he doesn't bring just any old joy, a joy that's just one among the many temporary thrills of this world, but that Jesus brings a unique joy that's associated with his coming and his forgiveness and his salvation and his kingdom and his abundant reign in that kingdom over us. Now I bring all that up that we covered last week, not just to remind you of what you may have missed, but to help you see that verses 13 to 22 aren't somehow now moving on to something different than messianic joy. They're building on messianic joy. For the Apostle John, it's not a matter of, okay, Now that you've seen Jesus perform a miracle and through it foreshadow the joy his hour will bring, let's move on to something altogether different. That's not how he's written this gospel. Everything written in this gospel builds on itself so that now the rest of his gospel isn't disconnected from the joy of Christ's kingdom, but fundamentally bound up with it. So when you sit to read John's gospel in your devotion, or when you study chapter 3 for the ladies' Bible study next week, you're not moving beyond messianic joy. As you turn the pages of your Bible, you're actually growing deeper in it. John has a purpose to ensure that your faith is grounded in the Messiah and everything associated with His coming including the joy of his salvation. John didn't write to give us an exhaustive account of everything Jesus did. Is this to say his gospel just merely amounts to Jesus did this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this, the end. Verse 12 even tells us that he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days without giving any details of what actually happened there. John's purpose is not to give us an account, an exhaustive account of Jesus' life. He even says that in chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other, thing, many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But he goes on to tell us why he chose to write these. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Part of having life in Jesus' name is experiencing the joy of His salvation. John, and John writes everything to that end that you might experience the joy of knowing Christ. We might even compare it to the purpose for which he wrote his first letter as a pastor in 1 John chapter 1, verse 
4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So if verses 13 to 22 are planning us deeper in messianic joy as we come and see Jesus and who he is and what he's about, how do they do so? What do they reveal about Jesus that plants us deeper in the joy of his kingdom? And the answer is that verses 13 to 22 give give us further insight into how God's Messiah brings us joy in his kingdom. And we see that and we see how he does that in at least two ways. God brings us the joy of his kingdom first through Jesus' zeal for God's glory. And then second, through Jesus' authority to replace the temple. Let's put it another way. Your joy in God is dependent on two things, according to verses 13 to 22. Jesus' own zeal for God's glory. And Jesus' authority to bring you face to face with that glory. Please note that John says nothing of your own abilities, of our own abilities to bring about such joy, but only those abilities of Jesus Christ himself. His zeal and his authority accomplish our joy in salvation. So let's look at the first way God brings us the joy of his salvation. He does so through Jesus' zeal for God's glory. Verses 13 to 15 set the stage. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover and it says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. This is obviously a big problem for Jesus because he makes a whip of cords and drives everyone out of the temple. People included among the sheep and oxen. With a whip. Then he pours out the coins of the money changers and overturns their tables. And at this point, you're left asking, what in the world is going on? You can imagine the disciples going back to John the Baptist. I I thought you were weird for eating locusts and honey. This guy's in the temple with a whip. (laughs) After creating wine last week. What is going on? After all, Leviticus 5 and number 7 both tell us that oxen and sheep and pigeons were all needed for sacrificial worship in the temple. What a service they were providing for those traveling long distances. How convenient to provide the animals on the spot. The religious leaders had consumer interests in mind here. And while at it, why not provide money changers? So that the temple tax might more easily be paid to the Roman Empire. So what are you doing, Jesus? What's the big problem? Jesus tells us the problem in verse 16. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. What's really going on here? The problem is not their commerce... In and of itself, they're buying and selling and trading. Jesus isn't interested in reforming their business ethics. It's not the problem Jesus mentions here. The problem 
is that they've brought their commerce into the temple area, a place where it shouldn't be at all. They've turned his father's house into a house of trade, into a marketplace. God's house wasn't to be a marketplace, but a place for solemn prayer and humility before God's presence. The temple grounds weren't meant for making shrewd business deals, but for meeting with God himself and standing amazed at his provision for guilty sinners. We can think of David's prayer in Psalm 5. Through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. Or Psalm 27, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The temple grounds weren't for business, but to adore the all-glorious God and to have communion with him. Some of you will remember from our discussion in chapter 1 that, that what gave the temple its significance was the glory of God's presence. Whether in the temple building itself or in the court of the Gentiles, the praise of God's glory was the aim and focus of being there. Just as it's the aim of the heavenly temple, of which these earthly things are a shadow where angels cry without ceasing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We might also note that Passover is drawing near. The people were supposed to be spending the time observing God's provision in delivering them from Egypt by providing a sacrificial lamb to deliver the firstborn from death. They're not excited about what God purchased for them through sacrifice. They're excited about what they can provide and purchase themselves with their money. So Jesus runs them all out with a whip for changing the meeting place into a marketplace. In other words, he's saying they have no right to conduct their business in the temple. Now we're tempted to think, isn't this a bit harsh? Jesus running people out with a whip, flipping over their tables, pouring out their money. But what John wants us to understand is that Jesus' actions rub us so wrong because we don't really see Jesus rightly. A point we we might all consider. When we don't see Jesus for who he truly is, we'll always stumble over what he does and says. He says, follow me, and we'll make exceptions. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and we'll make compromises. He says, take these things away and we'll bring them right back into the temple. Just like the merchants did. And Jesus had to chase them out a second time at the end of his earthly ministry. He hangs on a cross and dies. And we'll say, we can't be be all that bad. He rises from the dead and we'll say, Lord, over my morning devotions, not my job or my money or my vacation. We'll always stumble over what Jesus does or says when we don't see him for who he truly is. So to keep us from stumbling, John adds for us, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house 
will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quotation from Psalm 69. And basically, John's way of saying that Jesus fulfills in his actions what was expected of Israel's messianic king. The Old Testament anticipated a Messiah who would be much like David, but far greater. So, for example, he would come from David's family line, but would be even better since he would have no sin. He would sit on David's throne, but would be even greater since there would be no end to his rule. He would rule over God's people, but with enough power that would achieve universal peace. He would defeat all his enemies, but with a superior victory that included the defeat of sin, death, and the devil. He would relate to God as his own father, but in an even better relationship, since he himself would be a divine son. And so goes the pattern in the Old Testament. Even the experiences of the coming Messiah would be much like David's experiences were when he ruled God's people. But always in ways that proved God's promised Messianic king was was superior. So by quoting from David's prayer in Psalm 69 verse 9, John is saying that Jesus fits the Messianic mold. Jesus fits the pattern of the old, that the Old Testament anticipated of a much greater Davidic king. Just as David had zeal for God's house, so also Jesus had zeal for God's house. But to a much greater degree. An infinitely greater degree. As God's own son, Jesus was at his father's side for all eternity. He knew what meeting with God was all about. He experienced the unmediated fullness of God's glory in ways David never could or had. If anybody knows true worship of the father, it was Jesus, God's son... If anybody had authority to act this way in the temple and say these things to the money changers, it would be Jesus, God's Son. He knew God's glory was infinitely better than trade. He had experienced it firsthand. Moreover, look at how his zeal consumed him. David's zeal for God's house was known to be great because it led his enemies to consume him. So the zeal that's consuming, it's not zeal like consuming you, it's I've got zeal for God's house and they're consuming me. So the greatness of David's zeal is seen in what he's willing to suffer to uphold it. And in one place in Psalm 69, it says that the number of those who hate David are more in number than the hairs of his head. He becomes a stranger to his brothers. He falls prey to the hands of all of those who insult God. That's nothing compared to Jesus' zeal 
for God's glory. Jesus' zeal is infinitely greater than David's because he was not only willing to, to endure suffering at the hands of wicked men, but was willing to endure suffering under the infinite wrath of God in place of sinners like you and me. That is mega, off the charts, zeal. Mega zeal for God's glory. Mega zeal for true worship. Zeal for his father's house to be embraced rightly. Now that's convicting and encouraging at the same time. It's convicting because none of us have that kind of zeal for God's glory. We're just as satisfied with the world and just as cavalier about God's glory as those buying and selling in the temple. We're not forsaking our own pleasures to advance God's honor. We're indulging in them. When a God of infinite worth and beauty has revealed himself to us and given us access to him through his his son Jesus. It's convicting to see that our hearts are so rebelliously bent on finding satisfaction with our own selfish pursuits that we wouldn't even realize that we've exchanged the worship of God for a retail shop. It rightly merits the wrath of God's Son. It's at the same time encouraging because where we lack zeal for God's glory, Jesus has it in full. Such that whatever his zeal for God's glory costs him, he will endure it, even unto death on a cross. That's what the cross is all about. God saving sinners all the while upholding his glory. Jesus dying in our place that God's, God may be glorified in his wrath and we might be forgiven. And the same zeal for God's glory that led him to take your place on the cross is the same zeal he has as risen Lord to fight for you every day and to encourage you when you're weak and to ensure you enter his final kingdom and to ensure that you actually delight in the right things in this life. Doesn't that make you want to listen to this king? It makes you want to listen to this king when he comes into town with a whip. Or when he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. All of you follow me. Jesus is worth following because his zeal for God's glory exposes what we think is satisfying for what it really is. Cheap substitutes for an eternal God. We see that when he chases the money changers out with a whip. He's exposing their cheap substitutes. He's exposing what we think is satisfying. And his zeal for God's glory also makes provision for what is truly satisfying. Namely, communion with the eternal God himself. That's how he fights for our joy as messianic king on the cross and in his resurrection, and every day until we see him. He denounces what we think is satisfying and makes provision for what is truly satisfying, namely communion with God himself.
Which leads us to our second point. The first way God brings us the joy of His salvation is through Jesus' zeal for God's glory. The second way God brings us the joy of His salvation is through Jesus' authority to replace the temple. So Jesus' actions in the temple are not harsh or out of place or in any way unjust because Jesus is God's divine Son and the rightful King over Israel. Moreover, it's in and through His zeal for God's glory that we see His ultimate care and provision for us in the cross and resurrection. But not everyone's so convinced of Jesus' actions. Some of the Jews want a sign to prove His authority. They say in verse 18... What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus says in Matthew 12, 39, that an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. There's not even a hint of self-examination in these religious leaders over, what Je- over whether Jesus' actions were right and theirs were wrong. Not even a A hint. In many respects, the same attitude is present in all of us apart from Christ. Always assuming the burden of proof rests on Jesus. Always putting Jesus, the Son of God, in the dock and demand that He give an answer. Prove yourself, divine Son of God, is what they're saying. Their wicked hearts want nothing to do with Jesus' authority as Messianic King. They prefer the temporary thrills of money over his leadership into what is eternally satisfying in God's presence. They enjoy. These are some of the other joys, the temporary thrills that we were talking about a while ago. They, the beginning of the sermon. They like, they enjoy exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They like doing that. And they don't want anyone standing in their way, even if he's the king of Israel. Even if he's God's own son. So much to the point that in chapter 19, when Pilate brings him out and says, Behold, you're king. They forsake, the Jews forsake their theology, they forsake everything and say, We have no king but Caesar. We want that king. We don't want Jesus as king. And they crucified him. This is the problem we all have apart from Christ. We're so easily pleased with this world and its stuff that we'll even set ourselves above God's eternal Son and demand he gives answers for raining down on our parade. Jesus sees right through the pretense and our pride. He says in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Still on the material. Still on the material. And Jesus is pointing them to so much more. Still rationalizing with Jesus. When he's got glory, he's setting before their eyes. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But John tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. What does Jesus mean? There's a double-layered meaning here. What he means is that they're destroying God's temple already with their love for commerce over communion with God. 
They're already destroying God's temple. And the same sin that's leading them to destroy God's old meeting place, the stone temple in Jerusalem, will lead them to destroy God's new meeting place, the physical body of Jesus himself. Sin is not just a slip-up. That's what we see here. Sin is hatred for being with God. Whether that's seen in destroying the old temple or in destroying the person of Jesus himself on the cross. Sin is no oopsie-daisy. It is an absolute hatred for God's presence and his glory. The same sin that's leading them to destroy God's old temple will lead them to destroy God's new temple, Jesus himself. But this is why Jesus actually came. This was part of the plan. He came to be destroyed. He came to be torn down. That is, crucified and killed on a cross for our sins. And to raise up, not another stone temple, but his own body from the dead. Thus fulfilling what the old temple anticipated and replacing what it, what it really could never, replacing it with what it really never could provide. True and lasting fellowship with God. Unhindered communion with God's glory. This was God's plan all along, just like John chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. This is the plan. Jesus' authority over death is part of the reason he came. That by entering death through a cross, he might rise victorious over it to bring us into fellowship with God. Both his death and his resurrection life far surpass what any physical temple in Israel ever provided. They could point to what Jesus would bring and what God must provide for communion with him, but they could never provide it. Only Jesus could. If the Jewish leaders wanted authority, they wanted an answer for what right Jesus had to be in there chasing everybody out with a whip, this is it. Jesus has authority because he's not swayed by the sin and lust of this world like they were. His zeal for God's glory was too great for him to find any satisfaction in the temporary thrills of this life. Jesus has authority to lay down his life under the weight of our sins and God's wrath against them and deal with them completely. Jesus has authority to then take up his life again and ensure an eternal victory over death for all his people such that the fellowship they gain with God through the now risen Lamb is greater than what any physical temple can provide. Jesus has authority to act this way in the temple because he fulfills all it pointed to and replaces it with his own body as the superior meeting place with God Almighty. 
No more sacrifices need to be performed in the temple because Jesus is the supreme sacrifice. His blood cleanses us from all our sins forever. Unlike previous temples that can be destroyed, Jesus' resurrection body can never be destroyed. He can no longer die and He has no competitors that threaten His throne. He remains forever. And since the whole fullness of deity dwells in Him bodily, He becomes the focal point for the revelation of God's glory to man forever. The glory of God's presence is no longer limited to a temple in Jerusalem, but is beheld in the Son of God Himself. Just like John says in chapter 1, verse 14, we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. If you want to meet with God, come to Jesus. If you want to see the manifestation of God's glory, come to Jesus. If you want to see what the seraphim in heaven are singing about with holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the foundation, at the voice of their, the sound of their voices, the foundations of the whole heavenly temple are shaking. If you want to see that, come to Jesus. If you want to experience God's majesty and behold his power and find lasting satisfaction in infinite glory, come to Jesus. He is God's greater and final meeting place. You need not find a priest or go to a mosque or find a temple or make some religious pilgrimage. You only need to turn and come to Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. You need only come to Him. He's where we meet with God. I am the way, He says, and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The temple in Jerusalem sat in one place. Jesus is present and accessible anywhere that you call upon his name. That should be encouraging for your week. He's present anywhere you call upon his name. You're in the grocery store with five kids? (laughs) You know which families I'm talking about, don't you? It's not too many. You're in the grocery store with five kids. He's made God's glory available to you on the spot, accessible through Jesus Christ. You're getting out of sorts at work. He provided the peace of God's presence. You're wrestling against sin. He's made access to the throne of grace available to you in your time of need. You want satisfaction with sinful sex? You want victory over that? He's given you access to never-ending beauty in God's presence. You're looking for an escape from the problems of your life? He's the real hiding place, the true hiding place in which God will meet with you and lift your head. So don't delay wherever you are or whatever you're doing in coming to Jesus. He is God's meeting place. He's risen from the dead. He's alive. And He's zealous for God's glory on your behalf all the time. 
And he's made every provision through his death and resurrection to see that you enjoy that glory forever, even now. So come to him and don't delay. Don't delay. Don't delay any point this week in coming to him, whatever you might be facing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have sent Christ into the world to be our great king, our supreme king, our everything. I pray that you would help us see his authority, but also what kind of authority it is, one that is concerned for our good and eternal well-being in God. I pray that you would drive out everything that hinders your worship in our hearts and that you would make provision that we might find true and lasting satisfaction in you. At every point, we know that you've already done this decisively in the cross and in the resurrection. We pray that you would give us faith in days ahead to embrace this reality that we might persevere to the end and behold your glory in the risen Christ forever. In Jesus' name, amen.